Well, good evening. It's so good to see all of you here tonight, knowing that I was going to preach. Shane told me that uh, before service that he had checked everybody for tomatoes. But I don't think anybody checked Shane. So watch him tonight. If you have your Bibles, it's just going to be me and you and the Word of God tonight. And we're going to uh, look at the idea of greatness. And we're going to, just as David talked about, it's important to tell Bible stories, we're going to look at a couple of characters uh, that both exhibited greatness in two different ways. And so be turning to Jeremiah, the 22nd chapter, while I look for my eyes here. If I were to ask you if you know of someone who is great, what would you base that on? Would you say, well, I know someone who is great as a captain of industry, someone who had worked himself up from a small business into this grand mega corporation? Or would you say, well, I know someone who's great, who was a, a leader of the country, who had managed to work himself through the state and up to the national level and was a great leader? Or would you say, I know someone who's great, who had a lot of money, who was wealthy and he grew up poor. Well, we base greatness on a lot of things as humans. But do we ever consider the heart? Do we ever consider greatness of character? There are a lot of people who are great, but they weren't great people. We look at Pete Rose, Charlie Hustle. I don't think there's any doubt among baseball fans that Pete Rose was a great baseball player. But he wasn't a great person, or he's not a great person. Some people might say, well, Muhammad Ali said he was the greatest. And as a boxing fan, I, I liked Ali. He came to visit us in Korea. But I would, as a boxing fan, I would have to maybe disagree with him on whether or not he was the greatest boxer who ever lived. It goes back to character and heart that make people great. So when we come to Jeremiah, the 22nd chapter, <clears throat> beginning in verse 13, God is speaking to someone who strove for greatness. And God says, Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness, and his chambers by wrong, that... Uh, that uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work. That, that says, I will build me a wide house and large chambers and cut him out windows and it is sealed with cedar and painted with vermilion. Who's he talking about here? Well, Go on down, and we see he's talking about Jehoiakim in verse 18. Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, 
the son of the king of Judah. And you remember from your Old Testament studies how that the children of Israel had divided into the ten tribes of the north and the, the two tribes of the south were known as Judah. And Israel went back and forth between their good kings and their bad kings. And they probably had more bad kings than they had good kings. And they began a, a downhill, not slide, but a plunge when Manasseh came to power. And Manasseh was probably one of the most evil kings ever to rule uh, Israel. And if you go back to 2 Chronicles, the 33rd chapter, Manasseh, it said, seduced his people and led them into all sorts of evil. Here was the leader who should have been great, but he led his people downhill. And then Josiah came. And Josiah, you remember, was six years old when he began uh, to reign after the death of Manasseh, who ruled for 55 years. And he began to institute good reforms in the country. He had restored the word of God that was hidden for so many years. And Josiah reigned well, but his roots did not go far enough to prevent the plunge. And so by the time Jehoiakim here uh, takes over as king, they're back on the slide again. And they're soon, maybe 20, 25 years, I believe it's closer to 25, that it will be before they go into captivity. But Jehoiakim had a good example in his father. But he chose not to observe that. Listen again to verse 18. Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. They shall not lament for him. They shall not lament for him. We'll come back to that verse. Jehoiakim was not a great man. Well, we go back to, uh, to verse 14. We say, well, what about this house he was going to build? He was going to build a big house. And it was going to have, depending on the translations that you have, it was going to have these huge rooms and a large upper room where he could invite people to come and see his big house and come and see how great I am. In the, in the King James Version, here the first edition autographed by the translators that I have here, uh, says it was vermilion. Now if you ask Kayla and, and Tali, I don't see Tali, but we have some good artists here. And they'll tell you that vermilion, and your, your translation will have red if it doesn't have vermilion. That's kind of a misnomer. It's not really red red, but it's an orange red. And I don't want to see you, David Delt, jumping up and, and go, saying, go big orange. But it's a more gaudy than red. It's red with orange mixed in it. And that's what jo, uh, jo, uh, Jehoiakim here says. That's what makes me great. I'm going to have this large house. 
Well, what kind of a man was Jehoiakim? Let's turn over now to chapter 36 of Jeremiah. <clears throat> In chapter 36, God tells Jeremiah to take a scroll and write down all of the prophecies that have been given to Jeremiah and go and read them to the king. <clears throat> now, Jeremiah, he's this great king. He has great wealth, and he, we find him in verse 22, sitting in the winter house. All of us have winter houses, don't we? Mine's the same as my summer house. <laughs> Never moves. But he was sitting there in the winter in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. He was living in comfort, <clears throat> and it came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves... Jehoiakim took his penknife out and cut them out, threw them in the fire. I may have told you uh, many years ago during a desert storm, I was stationed uh, in Chattanooga for, to do some things. And there was a lady there who had taken the Bible and she had gone through it and she cut out the things that she didn't like. She cut out the things that were in her mind, negative. And she only printed 26 copies, and I wasn't able to get one. I just wanted one for curiosity's sake. But you see, <clears throat> that kind of idea goes back a long way, doesn't it? Here is Jehoiakim sitting, hearing the word of God, and when it's read to him, what does he do? Takes his penknife. I don't like that. Cut it out. I'm going to throw it in the fire. And we continue, it says, And it came to pass that when Jehuda had read three or four leaves, he cut it out with a penknife and cast it into the fire on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire. And listen to the next verse. Yet they were not afraid, nor did they rent their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all these words. David was talking this morning as he was reading about the sons of Eli. They had sinned against God. Who would mediate for them? Who do you think would mediate for Jehoiakim? Here he has the word of God read to him at ease. And rather than open his heart and hear the word... He takes a knife out. I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like that. That's not greatness. That's being self-centered. That's being little. That's being self-ambitious. And yet, do we not sometimes have difficulties with passages and choose to ignore them or to go to another passage? Do we sometimes not want to hear the word of God because it's too hard, because it's too convicting? He was like that. Let's go back to chapter 22. Listen to the description God paints of Jehoiakim <clears throat> in verse 37 or excuse me, in verse 17. 
<clears throat> he, he, uh, well, let's go back up uh, 16. God had already told him he had a great example in his father, Josiah. And he says about Josiah, he judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well with him. Was not this, was not this to know me? To do justice, judge the cause of the poor and needy. Isn't that what God expects of all of us? But yet if you back up to verse 15, what was his heart on? God said, <clears throat> shall you reign? Shall you be great because you clothe yourself in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do judgment and justice? And then it was well with him. That was not Josiah. Here's the picture painted of Josiah in verse 17. But your eyes and your heart are not but for thy covetousness and to shed innocent blood <clears throat> and for oppression and for violence to do it. That was a horrible 25 years, I would imagine. People being oppressed, innocents being killed. And so in verse 18, thus saith the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or ah, my sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, O Lord, or ah, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of a donkey and drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. It's not a funeral for great people, is it? That's not the end for a great person because Jehoiakim was not a good or a great person. And we can go back again to Second Chronicles 33 and we can read of the king of Babylon coming and uh, taking him away into captivity, leading him out in bronze uh, fetters. Where's his big house now? Where's Jehoiakim's key to greatness? This big house that he's cut windows out of. This big house that has all these large rooms. These, this big house that you can't miss because it's orange red. I'm sure some of you are just dying now to call the Sherwin-Williams and see if you can get them to come paint your house for a million. I don't think I would. <laughs> but see, where was his heart? It was on external things. And greatness is not found in external things. It's not found with what we have it's not found with who we are among the world. It's not found among great monuments we've built to ourselves. It's found in character. It's found in our hearts. Well, I said we were going to talk about two people tonight, and we are. Turn over to Acts, the 16th chapter. <clears throat> and you're probably ahead of me on this. We're going to talk... Uh, here about a wonderful example 
of greatness. In verse 13 of Acts chapter 16, And on the Sabbath we went out to a city by the riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake to the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, she was a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized and, and her household, she besought us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and abide there. And she constrained us. Here we find Lydia. Lydia could say the same things that Jehoiakim said. She was a, she was a wealthy woman from all that I can read in, in history about sellers of purple and how far the uh, purple material goes back. It goes back to the time of David when they would uh, get this purple. It was called uh, Thyra purple. It was a particular type of purple. They got it from two places. Number one, they got it from the matter plant, the roots. But this particular uh, Thyatiran purple, and I may be pronouncing that name. My brain is not uh, fully functioning sometimes. But it was a certain kind of purple. It was the same purple that we find in the New Testament when the priests and, and those who were uh, in high places would wear on the hem of their garments to show their power and their wealth. It was also the kind of purple we're seeing these days with the death of the queen and you see the Empire State Building uh, lit up with purple and uh, that's the first thing that comes to the mind of all of us, even the young children. They see purple and, and, and associate it with a king or a queen. It was hard to get. It came from the Murex shell. <clears throat> this little, I call it a snail. It's, it's a certain type of sea animal that lives in this shell. And they're hard to get. And not only that, you've got to get a lot of them to make enough cloth to sell. And it's time, labor, and intensive. It is a difficult thing to produce. So you can imagine it's going to be expensive, isn't it? And she made her trade selling that purple to those who were wealthy, selling it to the house of Rome, and those who were in charge, the Senate often wore purple robes during those days. They would also have to get this mollusk and they would have to put it in lead pots and they would boil it for days and days and uh, as I have read uh, historians write it had its own unique smell <clears throat> but it was necessary in order to get enough of this purple dye in order to sell to the wealthy <clears throat> let's make one note here as we begin this we we went out who is that and I think probably most of you know that that was Paul that was Silas that was Timothy that was Luke. 
And they've come here to the riverside because there's no synagogue. There is no synagogue. And so the women have not been too good to sit down by the riverside. Now, I don't know about their riverside, but if you sit here at our riverside and fish, you got mosquitoes and gnats. It's hot. But that's where they were content to get away from everything and devote themselves to prayer to God. They were worshiping as Jews. And whether Lydia was a a Greek Gentile or or whether she was a Jewish, she was uh, participating with the women. She was worshiping God. And it says that her heart was opened by God. Now let's remember, I've said this before, the heart is one thing God cannot have unless we give it to Him. She opened her heart. She attended, it says in verse 14, to the things which Paul spoke to her. She had a heart that was willing to hear something that maybe conflicted with what she knew. With the reason that she was worshiping as she was. God opened her heart because she opened her heart. It's a wonderful thing to look at the contrast between Jehoiakim and between Lydia, both wealthy people. And we see that Lydia also had a big house because it says, after she was baptized in her household, she begged us, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord. Notice her meekness. Notice her humility. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord. She didn't say, if you've judged me to be faithful to you. She said the Lord. Examine me as the Lord would say. And if I've been faithful, come to my house. Her house was big enough evidently for her household, but also these four men who had come and preached to her that she would invite them to stay a while and give them hospitality. Lydia didn't strive for greatness. Lydia just was great. And I look at her conviction. There wasn't this synagogue with a nice roof overhead and protection from uh, the elements, comfortable, that she could sit and listen to the word of God Even though she was wealthy, she wasn't too good to sit down with the other women and pray to God and to encourage them. Lydia was great because of her heart. Lydia was also great because she was faithful and obedient to do what she knew to do on the Sabbath day. I don't know if this, evidently this was her home, whether it was a second home and she was traveling, but on Sunday, or on the Sabbath rather, she made sure she obeyed God and followed his command and worshiped him and opened her heart to him and began serving 
That's right. When she was baptized, she said, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come stay at my house. She was a servant. She could have said like Jehoiakim, you know, I'm a wealthy woman. I need a, a chair. I need a tent out here next to this, this river. I need to uh, have some comfort. Haven't you seen my big house that I've got that I can invite these people? She didn't say that. She had one. But she chose to use it for hospitality and for service and to praise God and to become what she was to be a new creature. There's a difference between striving for greatness and, and going for the gusto and getting all you can get before you die. <clears throat> but we go back and look at Jehoiakim. When he died, his big house, whether it was finished construction or not, it fell away with the rest of Judah. Judah was carried into bondage along with him and he died a horrible death and was buried, as God said, like a donkey. Now what does this have to do with us? Well, what makes a great congregation? What makes a great church? Well, if you ask the world, they say, well, look at the cathedrals in New York. Look at how tall they are and how beautiful they are. And look at all the intricate artwork that's on the walls and the, and the ceiling. That's a great church. Look at the Vatican. Or they say, well, my congregation has all the city council here. The governor sometimes pops in. We got a lot of people who are very successful. Or we might say, uh, do you know uh, what kind of a basketball team we have? Do you know we're number one in the mid-state? And we've got this wonderful gymnasium. And we serve the best fried chicken in our fellowship halls. That's not what makes a great church. Let's turn over to Revelation, the second chapter. In Revelation, the second chapter... Jesus, in his revelation to John, <clears throat> talking to the seven churches, sends this message. Beginning there in verse 8 of chapter 2, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and last which was dead and is alive. I know your works and tribulations and your poverty. That's a poor church, isn't it? He said, I know your works. You've been through this tribulation, whatever that was. Probably the numbers had dwindled. There were people carried off or uh, wearing the name of Christ. There were people who were preaching that were imprisoned and others were killed. <clears throat> and he says, I know your poverty. What does he say? You're rich. You are rich. Just like when God says, he looked upon it and said, it is good. When he says this congregation was rich, in God's eyes that was a 
congregation that though it had been through trials, though it had been through persecutions, though it had been through tribulations, though it had been through so much, God says you're rich. Why? Because they were keeping on, keeping on. They were continuing to preach in the face of horrible persecution. They were continuing to preach in light of false doctrine that was creeping in. They were continuing to do what they were supposed to be doing. And their heart, God says, is rich. It is great. What makes a good church? Some people might go into a congregation and they say, well, this church is kind of poor. This church, this congregation doesn't have very many people. This, this congregation may say, look at the building. Or someone may say about this congregation. It's not the building. It's the people. And it's not the people's status. It's the people's hearts. And the people's conviction. And the people's faith. And the people's strength. And the people's character. It makes the congregation rich and makes it great. The little church in Smyrna continued to do what they were supposed to do. And God says, if you continue to be rich, if you continue to be great until the end, like the little train that could, the little engine that could, and he kept on going and going, there's a crown of life laid up. We look at our congregation. What is our character? Are we a congregation of love and grace and mercy towards each other? Are we a congregation that when God's word is read to us, we have our Bibles out? Or we have them open on our phones? And we're eager to listen to it read and we're eager to read it to make sure what we hear is right. We're not mentally saying, well, I'm going to check that off. I'm going to check that off. Where is our character in this congregation? Do we search for things that are great? Or do we choose to honor our God and our Lord and his greatness? For us. And we need to understand that that's what God will look at us and judge us on. <clears throat> Greatness is in our hearts. Just as it was with Lydia. She could have depended on those things, but she didn't. We don't depend on those things either. We welcome all, I hope. I hope every person who walks in off the street, as was mentioned in class this morning, Every person who comes into our midst, regardless of how great the world may think they are or how poor they may be, they're welcomed with peace. They're not welcomed with a diatrophies that John wrote about in his third epistle. Talking about someone who decided who could come in and who couldn't. Who could be a member and who couldn't? That's not our responsibility. James, over in chapter 3 of James, 
tells us not to be many teachers there in the first verse, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. We need to take teaching humbly and fearfully that we will be judged. Paul even had to tell the Philippians to esteem one another more highly than ourselves. Is that our character? Is that the heart of Northfield Boulevard? Do we all have that heart that when someone is missing, as our brother said, we go look for them? We're concerned about them. We don't wait till they've been gone two or three months and then say, oh, I haven't seen them in a while. I know people who, when they get home from church services, call the sick, call the people who were not there to find out about them. Are we that interested? Is our heart searching for the greatness of a servant, as our brother read to us? That ought to be our heart. That ought to be our character because that what, that's what God looks for. Now, I found this that I thought might be interesting to you. I hadn't uh, heard of it until a, a few years ago, and someone uh, showed me this, and I have used it in this uh, sermon. It's called The Oak Tree by Johnny Ray Ryder, Jr., and I'm sure that's not a name that you, you remember. But it talks about the character that we as individuals and as a congregation need to have. It says, A mighty wind blew night and day. It stole the oak tree's leaves away, then snapped its boughs and pulled its bark until the oak was tired and stark. But still the oak tree held its ground while other trees fell all around. The weary wind gave up and spoke, How can you still be standing, oak? The oak tree said, I know that you can break each branch of mine in two and carry each leaf away. You can shake my limbs and make me sway. But I have roots that are stretched in the earth, growing stronger and stronger since my birth. You'll never touch them, for you see, they're the deepest part of me. Until today, I wasn't sure of just how much I could endure, but now i found, thanks to you, I'm stronger than I ever knew. That's what makes a congregation great. That's what makes a Christian great, is having roots that are deep, that are nourished, and they're reaching down for that nourishment and they're opening their receptacles to receive that encouragement and nourishment from faith, from hope, from good works, from benevolence, from love, from grace, from mercy, and from the desire to know what our Father is willing, able, and longing for us to hear about his love and about his ways. I'll close with this. Micah 6 and verse 7 is a familiar passage. As he has told you, mortal one, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness 
and to walk humbly with your Lord. Many people find strength in achieving and striving for greatness. Greatness and its joy is found in meekness. Greatness is found in being humble. Humble before the Lord. Humble before each other. Humble and meek in all that we do and all that we say. It's hard for me to believe that there may be someone here tonight uh, that believes Jesus, who believes that he is the Son of God and has not responded, but there may be. And you know who will be so happy tonight if you respond? Not only the angels in heaven, and not all, only these smiling faces who will become your brothers and sisters and help you along the way. But the happiest person tonight will be you. Because you will have taken that step to wash away your sins. To give up all the things that you used to think were great and find true greatness in serving the Lord, serving each other, in growing, in maturing, and in gaining nourishment and strength from your brethren and from the Word. You may have taken that step and found it to be, as Jesus said, a cross, a difficult thing. That's not unusual. You're not the only one who has experienced that or who will experience that. And you may need us to pray on your behalf. You may need us to encourage you, and we're willing to do that. You may need us to study with you. And boy, we have so many here who would be happy to sit down and study with you. Whatever the case may be, won't you make it known while we stand and while we sing?